This is Irik Sharp, and you are listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast. It's a numbers game, and if we play in this world long enough, we're going to make bad decisions. Welcome back to the Avalanche Hour podcast, your source for great conversations within the snow and avalanche community. I'm your host this week, Dom Baker. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by VEASAN Avalanche Control, safety through innovation. With additional sustaining support from Gordini, we keep you outside longer. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people with a curious fascination for avalanches. We'll kick this off with a quick update from our friends at Avalanche Canada. Ryan Bueller is the Forecasting Program Supervisor. He stopped by the show to give us a quick update on Canada's public avalanche forecasting organization, Avalanche Canada. After his update, we'll dive straight into part two of our chat with Eric Sharp. But first, here's Ryan Bueller. Okay, well, I'm uh, happy to be joined today by Ryan Bueller, the Forecast Program Supervisor from Avalanche Canada. Ryan, thank you for joining me today for a preseason update. Hi, thanks for having me. Just to get started, I was wondering if you could just give us a real quick um, background for yourself. Uh, we've had Grant Helgeson on here a couple of times, and he was on the podcast, um, yeah, I guess three times now. So yeah, if you wouldn't mind, just give me a super quick uh, background for yourself, and then I'd love to ask you a bit about what um, Avalanche Canada has got planned for this year. Great. Yeah, I'm uh, coming from a bit of a diverse background. I started ski patrolling 15 or so years ago. I went through the ASARC Avalanche Research Program with Bruce Jameson at the University of Calgary. And then I started working for Avalanche Canada around 2013. At the same time, I also worked for Parks Canada and Rogers Pass on the highway program part-time. I took a five-year hiatus and went to the Avalanche Consulting world, working for Dynamic Avalanche Consulting, and recently came back to Avalanche Canada for the past year and a bit, I've been the new forecast program supervisor here. As you mentioned, our bulletins are going live shortly on Friday, November 24th. And we've got a few other interesting things happening in the next few weeks that we can talk about today. Awesome. Great. Well, thanks for joining me. I appreciate that and uh, giving us a bit of your background. Sounds like you bring a real uh, depth of experience to Avalanche Canada there. So um, yeah, you you mentioned the forecast going live. So uh, let's talk about that. And then um, maybe you can mention some of the webinars you've got coming up as well, because they're always a great resource for information. Sounds great. Yeah. Um, on November 24th, we'll be going live with a full set of Avalanche bulletins for all uh, Western Canada. With our new flexible forecast system that we've released last season, it gives us a lot of options. So while we lead into that, we will likely have some information in our bulletins. They'll likely be larger regions than you're used to during the normal season, and they will probably not have danger ratings. But as we lead up to November 24th, the new system gives us options to put uh, avalanche summaries, snowpack summaries, and a bit of basic information about early season conditions. As you mentioned, we have... A series of webinars. These are roughly every two weeks. The next one is November 22nd, and it's a it's a new presentation that has just been created about out of bounds at ski areas and things to look for, how to manage out of bounds conditions. That'll be coming out on November 22nd. So we encourage everyone to tune into that. And then on December 13th, we have a webinar focused on backcountry skiing, and we will be featuring two search and rescue specialists on this podcast. So it's everything a search and rescue specialist would like you to know when heading out into the backcountry. Oh, that sounds awesome. That's uh, definitely one to tune into. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. So we've got some webinars coming up. You also have some uh, events, I believe, uh, fundraiser, perhaps. Do you, would you want to talk about that at all? That's right. If you're in the Calgary area in a few days, on November 18th, we'll be having a fundraiser event that will feature live music, food, drinks, and a silent auction. So we encourage everyone to attend that. Well, you've reflected a little bit on these uh, new forecast boundaries, and it sounds like the new system gives you some flexibility with early season conditions, which is pretty good, at, at, especially at a time when there's not a lot of 
other information out there. I, I was wondering if you wouldn't mind talking a bit about how that went last year, because that was quite a big change for Avalanche Canada to be able to move the boundaries of their forecast regions to align with essentially uh, areas of similar conditions, whereas in the past they were pretty set from what I understand. That's right. Uh, it, it gives us the flexibility to move boundaries. And while in a way it creates new work for the forecasters because we have to now think about how the boundaries are going to look every day. It really made the, uni- the, the forecast areas more uniform. So we spent far less time talking about spatial variability on a regional scale within the old boundaries. This really worked well for us, uh, especially last year where we had a deep persistent slab problem in many of our regions. We could really draw our regions around where that problem existed a great example is the Purcells, where the problem was quite widespread in the north, but less of a problem in the south. So we were able to draw the boundaries to reflect the, that problem quite well in those regions. Sounds like that agility is really useful to the forecaster and then so beneficial to the end user as the public reading the, the bulletin. That's right. And another really good example is any major storm track. We can now really draw the boundaries to reflect where the storm is going to have the biggest impact and where the danger will be the highest. It lets our forecasters really focus the bulletins on conditions instead of having to write about what's happening in parts of the regions. That took up a lot of words writing about spatial variability in the past. So this new system has been really great for us. Awesome, man. That's good to hear. That's really good to hear. Um, one other thing I wanted to ask you about Ryan here is, uh, we talk about the resources that are available to, uh, backcountry users. And one that I think everybody loves, um, but maybe not everybody knows about is, uh, the mountain weather forecast. I wonder if you could just talk about that a little bit. It really is a great product. Um, our forecasters use it every day. It's part of our bulletin writing process. We have a really strong relationship with the environment Canada meteorologists, during our morning briefings, we pose questions to them and then we have a daily call with the meteorologists. So it, it really is super valuable to our forecasting. But the mountain weather forecast itself has become very popular amongst recreationists and, and the avalanche professional community. Even more, even more broadly than that, it's used throughout the summer by organizations like BC Wildfire, the Emergency Management, uh, BC Countless other organizations are now using this for mountain weather. The best thing about it, really from the meteorologist perspective, is it gives them a form where they can write their thoughts. A lot of traditional meteorology projects are very in the box, and this one allows them to, to, to go outside those boxes and write what they're really thinking and use a bit more creative language and those kind of things. So it's really been great. One of our favorite parts of it is that they can now create maps and they can annotate those maps. So for the day one and the day two products, those maps are are very, very valuable to us. So I recommend checking those out. Awesome. Well, thanks for commenting on that because I know I use it daily as part of my process as well. And uh, folks that are listening to this can stay tuned for later on in the uh, 23-24 Avalanche Hour podcast season. We'll have an interview uh, focusing on the mountain weather forecast, hopefully with Lisa Irvin. Um, so thanks for joining us, Ryan. Uh, if there's ways that folks can support Avalanche Canada, I mean, you do so much for, for the backcountry using community. Is there ways that, uh, we can support you? We do have one other fundraiser currently, um, that I should mention. It's called Wrap It Up. Tickets are on sale until December 20th and we'll be auctioning or, uh, raffling off a 2024 Skidoo Summit 850 snowmobile. So encourage everyone to go onto our website and buy tickets for that. Get yourself a new snowmobile. As you mentioned, uh, another really important way the community can support Avalanche Canada is submitting observations to the Mountain Information Network. I can assure you that forecasters read all of these. These are super important to our forecasting program, especially in data sparse areas. So the more the more information you can send us, the, the better quality the forecasts end up being. And a picture's worth a thousand words. We, we love seeing your photos. So I encourage you to submit photos to them in when you can. Awesome. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining me today, Ryan. And uh, everybody, avalanche.ca, it's your source for all the information. Buy yourself some swag. Support Avcan. Thanks very much for having me. This is part two of our conversation with Eric Sharp. Eric joins Caleb and I to talk ski guiding and remote places, gathering data and public avalanche forecasting in the Yukon, 
as well as lessons learned in steep and deep snowy places. I know you're going to love this one. Eirik is the president of the Canadian Avalanche Association. He's also a ski guide, an avalanche forecaster, mapping specialist, and a scientist living in the Yukon Territory of Canada. Without further ado, here is Eirik Sharp. Eirik, uh, switching gears here, uh, we've talked, you've alluded to the Yukon a few times here. I'd, I'd love to get a bit of your own background and uh, and talk a little bit about your own uh, career and that sort of thing. You have a pretty interesting uh family background. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about how you first got into uh, skiing and ended up in the Yukon uh, forecasting avalanches. Yeah, for sure. So uh, I have a Norwegian mother and, a, and an English father and and uh, dad's a helicopter pilot, mom's a diplomat. And so I spent my childhood kind of traveling the world. We lived in like, I don't even know how many countries before I was 18, but came to Canada um, in my teens, landed in Ottawa, uh, which wasn't really my mind in my mind of Canada. You know, in Europe, you think Canada is Rocky Mountains from coast to coast, and and Ottawa disappointed a little bit. And so after graduating high school, went back to Norway, spent a couple of years being a, a ski bum there, and then uh, picked a university based on where the good skiing was, and ended up at uh, at UBC. And I did a a math degree. Took me took me seven and a half years to get through because I'd take all my winters off to to move to ski towns and and ski. But I guess about, about yeah, probably my fourth or fifth year, I was kind of like, oh, my God, what am I going to do with this thing? Like, everyone else in this department has pocket protractors and, you know, doesn't see the sun all, all year long. They hang out in their basement. Oh, that's mean to mathematicians. But, um, yeah, it just so happened that at UBC, the geography department was right behind the math building. And at that time, uh, Dave McClung was running the Avalanche Research Group at, uh, at UBC. You know, Dave... Uh, Dave was the writer of the uh, the Avalanche Handbook, which is our you know for a lot of us our Bible, and uh, a longtime researcher had a research chair in Avalanche me- Mechanics, I think, at UBC for a bunch of years. And anyway, so I started hanging out with with these guys. There was this uh, group of grad students there, and I was like, oh my god, you guys, this is the coolest thing ever. So I uh, yeah would hang out with them and volunteer to go help them with their field work, and and uh, started taking my ITP courses. And then when I eventually graduated, I, I got super lucky. Actually, I got a job ski patrolling, but they only offered me half-time work. It was in Golden. And uh, Dave had a, a research program at Rogers Pass. And so he offered me a part-time position as a research tech at Rogers Pass, which I was initially really stoked about. I was like, oh, man, this is going to be so much fun. I'm going to get so much skiing in. And then I realized that the studies they were doing there at the time were all uh, – cold lab experiments and I, I say cold lab pretty pretty loosely you know now you see what what's going on in, in the states with, with cold lab work and it's like it's uh this thing was a, an old industrial refrigerator that had been kind of cross-purposed and it wasn't have didn't have any you know temperature stabilization in it or yeah the phd student who i was working with was doing a bunch of fracture mechanics lab work and so we'd go out in the morning and i'd look up at like you know the beautiful face of mcdonald to the south and tupper to the north and i'd be like oh it'd be great to go ski there and then i'd harvest these columns of snow that had to be very uniform to be spent hours like cutting these meter by 10 centimeters by 20 centimeter columns out carry them carefully to the cold lab close the door and then we couldn't open the door once we had closed it because it was so temperature sensitive and so we were doing these three-point beam tests where you'd basically suspend this beam of snow kind of over two cantilevers and then get a load sensor in the middle and snap the beam and see how it fractured and we had uh we were we we're tracking it with motion cameras high-speed cameras we needed motion like particles to track the motion so my job was to have this lexican sheet with 100 holes in it and i would take 100 peppercorns and i would put 100 peppercorns on the snow and then i would load it up snap it and then we quickly realized we were going through peppercorns quicker than we could replace them and so then it was, it was, the solution was for me to get tweezers and pick out a hundred peppercorns out of this column of snow and put them back in the jar to dry them out. And I did that for days and days and days and didn't ski at all. And it was quite tragic, but then I just got to go ski patrolling on my, on my days off, which was awesome. And so I kind of intended to go to grad school and I was like, wait a second, this ski patrol and things way more fun. I get to ski. So, uh, yeah, I ended up working as a, a ski patroller in avalanche tech at kicking horse for five or six years 
which is a really cool program, ton of opportunity for mentorship and, and, and you know, one of those small hills with pretty rad terrain where everyone, everyone's throwing bombs, everyone's ski cutting, everyone's involved in the avalanche program. Yeah. Did that for a while. Kind of accelerated my training, just wanted to as learn as much as I could. So, you know, rather than wait for the ski hill to pay my level two, I went and paid for that myself and took it and just took as many courses as I could. And uh, was wondering what I should do next and saw an ad one summer for Avalanche Canada looking for field technicians for a new uh, field program they were setting up in the Yukon in White Pass, which sounded pretty appealing. I was like, oh, White Pass in the Yukon. It, it must know there a lot. Had no idea really anything about it, just threw a resume in on a whim. And yeah, I, I think it was one of those cases of like not being the most qualified applicant, but being the only applicant maybe that got me this job. And so, yeah, moved from from basically being a ski patroller to building a brand new avalanche program. Like I was so over my head, it was it was pretty amazing actually. I I, uh, uh, I thank my mentors from that time, you know, Carl Klassen and, and Ilya Storm at Avalanche Canada for for having the trust in me because I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> Granted, the, the operational pressures weren't there, but basically, what what happened is, you know, Avalanche Canada up until that point had written forecasts purely based on InfoX information um, and did a really good job. But there were certain areas where there was backcountry recreation happening where there weren't avalanche professionals working to provide a data source. And so to try and increase the geographic scope of the forecasts, they set up two pilot field programs to kind of with the task of being like, hey, figure out how to get information and, and funnel it back to us and you know, this stuff was being done in the States for sure. Like, you know, I know, I know lots of, of avalanche forecast centers there have field programs, but it was pretty new in Canada at the time. So we had one in the Lizard Range near Fernie and then one in the White Pass in, in the Yukon. And one thing I found out is that the, the Yukon's well-funded. Like there's lots of money here to support cool initiatives. And so the Yukon Avalanche Association, had, which had generated the funds to pay for this program, had just done a killing job. And like we are outfitted right away with, you know, two sleds. We uh, we based ourselves out of uh, a highways camp right in the right at the summit of the pass. Like so, sledding out the door. I think that first year I had I think I, don't, I, I may just be rose tinted glass. I think I had a sixty thousand dollar heli budget, and uh, me and and uh, my my tech Justin Abyss, who's now you know became a great friend over the years, but basically like had this undefined area. They were like figure out where people are going what they're doing and then figure out how to get us good data. And so we just like sledded around and skied around and flew around and, and uh, spent two weeks or two years, sorry. um, Yeah. Having a time in the mountains trying to figure out how to do this. Occasionally I chat with the guys down in Revelstoke at Avalanche Canada and, you know, feed them in for some information. But that, that first winter we weren't even producing a forecast. We were just figuring stuff out. So it was like, it was a pretty unreal job. I I learned a ton. I got away with probably a lot too, but um, yeah, really thankful to be given that, that opportunity. And that I did that for two years. And then kind of the thing I quickly found out is, is, uh, you know, the North is a great place to be a skier, but it's a hard place to be a skier. Uh, winters are, are pretty long and dark and, and, uh, I, maybe I didn't have the skill set to really like maximize my use of the terrain. You know, there were places I was scared to go. So I retreated back to Revelstoke and forecasted, became a forecaster for Avalanche Canada for a bunch of years. Went through my guides training that time too. And, and then, uh, transitioned into the guiding world in that time. I met my wife up here. So I was quickly pulled back by a woman. Um, but, uh, yeah. So guiding for a while, um, and then got the back, went back to school and did a master's in geomatics, kind of looking at, at, uh, avalanche mapping and, um, machine learning. And then that led me into my career now where I am, where I'm uh, working on more of the engineering side of things, doing lots of hazard analysis and and uh, avalanche mitigation work kind of at the planning and engineering level. So that's, yeah, that's the short, short, short version of a, of a 18, well, 20 year career that's kind of had me touch pretty much every little segment of the avalanche profession in Canada. It's been, it's been pretty awesome, pretty fun. Eric, for for those of us that aren't as familiar with the uh, the skiing and that in, in the Yukon, is 
this may be a dumb question because it's a big territory, but is it, the recreation predominantly focused around the White Pass area or are there other zones that, uh, that are, you know, popular to ski as well? Yeah. The, well, the people are focused around the White Pass. You know, the Yukon is, it's massive, right? It's almost as big as Alaska, but there's, there's 40,000 people who live up here and, and 24 of them, I think at last count, no more than that. I think almost 30 at last count live in Whitehorse. And so Whitehorse is, is an hour and a half away from the White Pass, uh, which is right on the border of, it's actually in BC, um, but it's, it's, you know, it, there's a sliver of BC between the Yukon and Alaska, and it's right on the border of, of Alaska, BC there, or the Haynes Pass, which everyone knows about in Haynes, Alaska. So the Haynes is about two and a half hours, three hours drive away, kind of great, great hop for a, take the camper out, go for a weekend. The White Pass is kind of the day skiing. There are, you know, geographically they're, they're maritime, but I think it, I've started prefacing them with a, with a, you know, they're a polar maritime. So they're, they're cold and, and have a relatively deep snowpack, but, uh, but a lot of persistent weak layers develop through the winter under these, you know, these big frigid regimes we get. Uh, lots of, lots of continental influence on a maritime snowpack. The neat parts about it are, you know, it's, uh, it's Alpine right from the highway level. Like you get out of your car and, and you're, you're skiing in the Alpine. The, the challenges of it are it's uh, highway level at the Alpine. So you get out of your car and you're skiing in the Alpine, you know, when, when it's good, it's really good. Um, when the wind's been out, uh, there's no trees to, re- to retreat to, you know, there, there's, yeah. So that makes it challenging uh, through the through the winter when the days are cold sometimes, but when the skiing's good, it's really good. And uh, in the spring, you know, when the days lengthen and 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 start seeing some solar inputs, and yeah, it gets really good. The ski mountaineering here is awesome. I'd say the Canadian side of the border definitely is is a drier climate than you know than the U.S. side. Like the transition from from thirty three mile at Haynes where the heli skiing happens to the the Haynes Pass summit. Um, it's pretty dramatic. Like you, you, you gain 900 meters of elevation, you drive 10 K and it's, it's like going from the coast to the Rockies. But, uh, there's, there's, uh, yeah, there's a ton of sweet, sweet skiing in between. You can always find good conditions somewhere for sure. One of the best things I've done in my career was actually start a heli ski operation up here a couple of years ago. And, uh, it, it was, it was short lived, but, uh, the opportunity to like, yeah, to basically venture off into the into the unknown with a helicopter and try and build a an efficient heli ski program in in this these pretty cool mountains with a pretty awesome snowpack was like one of the most rewarding things I've I've done for sure. It's still going Yukon heli skiing. It's great skiing up there. Where was that geographically? Uh, so that was actually right out of the White Pass. Yeah, super cool story. This guy Pete Wright, longtime Yukon resident, grew up in Atlin which is uh, a small community in BC, kind of in the region, just on the BC side, but uh, grew up in a First Nations family here and uh, then moved to Whistler, got involved in heli skiing somehow. He was like a lodge manager at, at one of the CMH lodges. Fell in love with heli skiing because of this connection he had to the First Nation communities, was able to put together this amazing tenure that's uh, one of the biggest tenures in Canada. Like, so it's an exclusive recreational use for, for heli skiing. It stretches from the White Pass almost all the way to Haynes, and uh, had this vision of like kind of the 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 Canadian heli ski program, but with a Yukon flair. So built and dragged five tiny houses out into this remote little corner of the White Pass, and and uh, yeah, brought me on to help him build build kind of the operational the operational procedures and figure out the terrain. He'd been skiing there for a decade beforehand, but we kind of tried to do it at a commercial scale. Yeah, kind of a shorter season, like an Alaska season, right? It starts and, you know, gets good in, in late February and goes through the end of April. But uh, pretty rustic, like frontier heli skiing. It was it was super fun, super cool program. Sounds like an amazing opportunity and quite a cool experience. Yeah, it was it was hard work. I'll tell you, I was I was uh, I ran it for a year and. Uh, did everything from like building the booking system to, you know, writing the safety plan to being the lead guide and finished that year and was, was smashed and was just, was probably a bit bitter and jaded to be honest. I was so tired and got to have a, a, a dinner with my predecessor at the CAA, Walter Bruins, who was a longtime president of CMH, you know, uh, like OG mountain guide and, and, uh, 
I was kind of dejectedly telling about my year and I was, I was like, oh man, it was hard. And he was kind of looked at me like I was an idiot, right? And he was like, you, you got to build a heli-ski program, Eric. You know, that, that, that doesn't happen anymore. And, and so with reflection and hindsight, like after the, after the, the, the stress wore off, it was, yeah, I, I look back on it super fondly. fondly. That's, that's kind of the, that's, you know what, that, that characterizes the skiing in the Yukon. It's, it's still so undiscovered here. There's, there's so much potential for getting out and having a first ascent or, or sledding into a valley that no one's probably skied in before, like just exploring the terrain. There's no guide, or there, there is a guidebook, but it's, it's pretty concentrated to the hideaway corridor. And as soon as you, you venture past that, it's, yeah, it's, it's frontier. It's wild. It's awesome. It's worth the trip. Talk a little bit about uh, the snowmobile access par- uh, part of your work with the uh, the avalanche forecasting there. Like, how are your snowmobile skills coming into that role? And uh, I'm guessing they improved quite a bit with a uh, couple of hectic winters that you were mentioning. Uh, yeah. Um, well, I had snowmobiled very little, and uh, I would, had more, you know, fear of like the mechanical side of them. And so when we were buying these. Uh, these these sleds for the, for the winter they you know they they basically were like Eric what do you want for for a sled and I, I didn't really know so I went and chatted with some folks and and somehow ended up uh, being convinced of the reliability of a four stroke and so I got uh, we got we bought ourselves two at that time you know cutting edge nitros the Yamaha tanks which never causes any mechanical issue but like. A heavy ass sled in a very faceted and thin snowpack early season <laughs> definitely um, forced you to learn digging technique. I hope, uh, yeah, I hope I hope my sledding has uh, has improved since then. I spent I spent a year forecasting in a mine in BC called Bruce Jack, where they have a uh, uh, they're actually up on a glacier that's only accessed by traveling a thirty kilometer glacier road, and so the techs were. We're, we're constantly on the sleds and and uh, spending a lot of time hooning around on the glacier, figuring out sledding help my help my sledding technique. But it was it was hard earned, man. In the Yukon, those early days, those tanks and oh yeah, they were they were an enemy, not an asset for a long time. But now, wouldn't do without one. <laughs> hey, Eric. So like when when you, Avalanche Canada was developing that forecasting program in the Yukon. Uh, you mentioned that it was pretty data sparse. And so during your time there, have you seen like a big uptick in um, utilization of the mountain information network and, and InfoX within the Yukon and, and what helped drive that a little bit? Yeah, totally. So that was, you know, that was kind of where it, that was the conversation we had was that Avalanche Canada is really good at forecasting for large regions. Like we, they tend towards defining these large operating zones, and and that's that, at least at the time. You know, we're seeing now um, they've got this flexible forecast region approach where they're breaking these large regions into smaller regions. But at the time, the kind of mo was like big region forecasting, and so we defined this huge region on a map when we showed up there, being like, basically being like, I would like to go skiing over here at some point, so I'm going to include that in my forecast area. Um, very not data driven. Like we tried to talk to some people about where they were going skiing, but people didn't want to talk to us. We drew, we drew this massive polygon on a map and was like, this is the forecast area. And then realized that given a two man field team or two person field team, there was, there was no way we were ever going to be able to get enough data to support a reliable avalanche forecast for this whole area. And so, you know, that wasn't the impetus, but that was definitely like recognizing that, um, the, mountain information network was being rolled out by Avcan at the same time. And, and, uh, we jumped on that and we were like, we were early adopters and what we call, we, you know, we call it recruiting minions and we're running lots of workshops. I think, I think we're lucky because Whitehorse is a largely a government town. You know, there's lots of, there's lots of people with, uh, maybe it's lots of people who like paperwork. I don't know what it is, but, but, uh, the local community really, really, adopted this idea of like citizen science and, and uh, recreational avalanche observers. And I think the rest of Canada has caught up, but for at least half a decade, there were more min reports coming out of this, like, you know, pretty small Yukon based ski touring community by an order of magnitude than there were for places like Whistler. Like it was pretty cool to see folks were getting out and, and um, I think we were, you know, we were, 
we got to be pretty innovative in, in trying to figure out how how to get non-professional observers to make quality avalanche education. And the idea of like not being, you know, until that point, avalanche language was really technical. It was really technical jargon. It was really inaccessible to folks. And so we, we were, we were, you know, we were really pushing, like, let's not, don't try and describe the snowpack because you're going to get it wrong <laughs> probably, or it, you're going to be very limited. You're going to talk about it where you dug a profile, but it's way more useful to just take a picture of your skis as your skin tracking. You know, that lets the forecaster who knows a lot about snow recognize that, Hey, yeah, 15 centimeters of ski pen looks pretty low density. You know, we started getting folks, if they were going to dig a pit to don't try and describe the layering, just like brush in the, the critical layers with your hand and take a photo of that and then describe the snowpack tests or trying to get, uh, put a focus on, on really, to be honest, on quantity versus quality of observations. We figured lots of low resolution data was going to be more valuable than a couple of high resolution data points. And so yeah, we got to we got to we got to try and experiment and play with some some cool stuff that I think has now been. I'm sure other people were playing it with it too, so I'm not going to claim credit for it. But it's it's cool to see that some of the ideas that we were definitely pioneering are being adopted widely, you know, both in Canada and in, in the states. One of the smartest things we've done, as I say, we I'm, I'm not a public avalanche forecast anymore, but one of the smartest things that public avalanche forecasting centers have done is to engage that kind of citizen science observer mentality, get the folks who are consuming the data to engage in creating the products. Awesome. So smart. Um, Eric, you've really had uh, your hands in quite a different uh, variety of facets of our industry. And I was just wondering if you would care to share a notable event or a a learnable moment uh, from your time in the mountains, whether that be, uh, you know, recreationally or professionally. Yeah, totally. Yeah, no, I, uh, I think unintentionally I've, I've, well, it's probably because I've got ADD, but you know, I, 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 I just want to, I want to learn so much about this, this phenomenon. Right. And, and so I, I kind of have always been like, I want to learn about, you know, snow. So I, I started doing grad school and then was like, I want to know about avalanche initiation became a ski patroller. I want to know about, um, you know, how we communicate avalanche danger and assess it became a public forecaster. I want to know about terrain became a guide. So I've, I've managed to kind of touch a lot of the pieces of like the avalanche triangle through specific areas in my career. And I, I, I definitely dove deep on those, like on specific areas, I think, which has been super beneficial for me as a, you know, in my career. But yeah, definitely uh, guiding was the place where I, I learned the most. I think we, there's there's nowhere else where, especially heli skiing, where you engage with avalanche phenomenon at that volume and at that pace. Um, and I had some awesome mentors over my career, but uh, but yeah, it, it you know it almost ended pretty quick for me. It was actually like my I think my third day as a ski guide after taking my. Uh, after you know taking my or getting getting my apprentice ACMG apprentice ski guide ticket that I got fully bar- buried at work and uh, actually led me to like the master's project I went to do later on but but um, yeah zigged when I should have zagged um, and and got buried and and uh, quite a few takeaways um, I can get into the story if you want to hear it yeah I would love that so. Yeah, it was was cat skiing and was still very much like consciously guiding. I think I recognized later in my career that, you know, as you get a volume of, 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 of guiding under your belt, you become to start to guide more and more unconsciously. You recognize things, you process things on a lot more of that like subconscious level. But I was still very consciously guiding. I was like cat skiing, which was nice. So I had the time and the cat on the ride up to kind of think about the run, think about where I was going to regroup think I was about how I was going to manage my group. And, and, uh, we were dealing, it was early season. We were dealing with two main problems. It was, a uh, wind slab problem on, on kind of, uh, easterly aspects, you know, and, uh, in the Alpine and a tree line, and then a persistence slab problem on a, a layer of surface horror buried about a meter down on any open Alpine like feature. And, uh, and so I decided I didn't want to, I didn't know the terrain well enough to want to mess with bigger Alpine features. And I was going to stay away from the, the, you know, the persistent slab problem and, and just deal with the, the wind slab. And so I was picking, 
you know, uh, finding good skiing and picking terrain kind of at treeline. Definitely skiing uh, easterly shots where, you know, there was, uh, yeah, just getting in the habit of kind of like ski cutting little rolls, lots of size ones all day, um, but picking our way through the terrain and uh, skied this skied this one ridge back and forth, skied a couple of runs, thought that was awesome. Uh, and looking across the valley at this, at this Caskey Lodge, um, it's a below tree line feature, but it's alpine terrain. Like it's, there's no trees. It's, uh, it's massive, big pillows, you know, a big, it's tiger country for sure. And was just like, well, seeing a group skiing down that looked like they're having a ton of fun, but I'm like, I have nothing to do with that right now. That's, that's big country. That's, yeah, I'm going to stay in the trees. And so I planned kind of where I was going to go ski at that same ridge, but on the backside of what I could see. And, uh, yeah, ski my run down to the pickup, started driving up this ridge. And as I'm driving up the ridge, one of the other guys comes down, sending this like awesome looking pillow field gets on the radio. And he's like, hi, Rick, man, are you, are you coming over here? This like, this is skiing so well. And it's, yeah, it's awesome. I was like, Oh no, I'm, I'm going to ski another East aspect in the trees. And, okay, cool. I'm going to probably ski some more runs over here. In my mind on the drive up, I'm thinking about my regroups. There's a cliff I need to navigate around. There's, it's not a complex run, but it's like it's where I'm comfortable at for sure at that stage. And, and get to the top of this of my intended run, and uh, the other guide who was who had just seen skiing these pillows is like pulling in right behind me. And it turns out that our pickups are like or our drops are the same drops. Like I'm going to ski one way off the ridge, he's going to ski the other way off the ridge. And and he's, he gets on the radio again. And he's like, "Oh, awesome, Eric, you get you're going to ski that." Um, because if not, I'd probably ski it again. And all of a sudden, it was it was weird. It was like that run had a, a I got assigned a value that it didn't have before. And I was like, oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna miss out on it if I don't ski it right now. Like, and then I was also like, oh, there's tracks there. I can follow his tracks. I can learn the line. Like, it's you know, I can do this. And so I've gone from this decision where I'd like really analyzed and, and kind of planned how I was gonna manage the run to kind of venturing into the known and, and relying on on the existing tracks to kind of guide me through this pretty convoluted terrain. And so it was, yeah, a question of me getting off the, the, the runners of the cat and turning left, but I turned right, kind of stepped into the skis and like just, you know, stacked on his tracks into the, into the void. And uh, the terrain's kind of benchy. So it sees like convex rolls and another convex roll into a bench and a convex roll into a bench. And they keep on getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I'm just getting this like spooky feeling. I'm like, ah, oh, this is, this is exactly where I didn't want to be today. You know? And then we came to like the last convexity and it, it's, it's, it's a big convexity all the way down to the valley bottom, probably 300 meters of vert, like 900 feet. And it's where the pillows are. So it's kind of, it's, there's lots of weak points. And uh, there's, again, there's a little bit of a convexity at the top, but there's a bench running off to the skier's left or a ramp running off to the skier's left. And then a bench that kind of comes back under the, the critical piece, like the biggest convexity. And that's where... The other guy's tracks had gone. He had tracked, he had stacked, you know, he worked this bench or worked this ramp onto the bench and then back onto the main slope. And I was like, well, there's not enough room for me to stack tracks there. Like I'll be skiing his tracks with my group. And for whatever reason at that stage in my guiding career, like skiing, you didn't, I didn't want to like ruin my guest experience by having them ski 30 meters of tracks. And so I was like, oh, what am I going to do? All morning I'd been ski cutting stuff. So I had this like ski cutting tool in my head, you know, and, and so his ramp worked out skiers left. And I decided that I was going to ski cut the convexity like I'd been doing on these wind slabs on the opposite aspect all day. So I ski cut right. I was like, oh, I really don't like this. Like, I'm, this is this terrain's huge. This is nothing. You recognize the difference. And, uh, and then so I stopped. Ski cut back left and I'm ski cutting back left where and I hit a little, just tagged a little pillow and, uh, and yeah, triggered this, this PWL buried the surface hurl layer buried a meter and a bit down and it ran like I was close to the top of the convexity and I was kind of off to the left. So I, cause I got lucky cause I kind of just rode down 50 meters on down the convexity on this, this shuttle bench. I didn't get strained through the trees below me, but I was fully buried. Like I was, I was, you know, but, but standing, but the, the, the crack propagated 200 meters to my right, like a meter and a half down, ran size three to the valley bottom, almost hit the cat. <laughs> like it was, um, and it was soft enough snow that I like 
I was standing in my skis, totally vertical, but completely buried with my hands like above my head. And I managed to like kind of start digging myself out and managed to get an airway. And, and then my tail guide came down and like dug me out. And it was, it, you know, in terms of like the trauma of the burial, it was kind of a non-issue. It was, it was pretty, it was pretty, at the time it was pretty, uh, yeah, it was pretty, it just happened really quick. And then I kind of got on the radio and made a call and, and, uh, you know, different times we weren't quite as aware of mental health and like resiliency and all these things that we're, we're talking about a lot these days. And so the conversation was like, well, anyone in your guest hurt? Nope. You hurt? Nope. All right. Guess you're skiing for the rest. They will talk to you about it at the meeting. So I kind of skied all day, the rest of the day. And like, um, and then, you know, turned down a couple of drinks at the bar that night. I was like, I don't want to, I don't want to drink right now. I'm, I'm, I'm good. But, uh, yeah, definitely like it was just kind of brushed off. Right. And, 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 and then a couple of weeks later I was, I was, I was still forecasting for Avalanche Canada and, uh, I was just having a real hard time at work. And so one of my mentors, Ilya Storm, who by the way has the best name for an Avalanche forecaster ever, uh, took me out for lunch and, uh, we kind of, you know, we chatted and he was, he, he just made this really insightful and simple comment that was like, you know what, Eric, it's a, it's a numbers game. Like you're, you're going to make, if you do this enough, you're going to make a bad decision. And you just got unlucky and made a couple of bad decisions, like pretty early on in the game. And, and then that, so that, you know, and they were obvious bad decisions, right? Like looking back, I, I, so what if I had stacked some tracks, right? That 50 meters wouldn't have affected my guest experience. After that, it's a guide. I stacked so many tracks. Well, I was just like, we're eating, hey, Swissies, we're eating some tracks here. I know you're paying the big money for Canadian powder, but you know, this, <laughs> you're going to some tracks for a while. Um, so I stacked, I, I, I put an, an unneeded pressure on myself. I zigged when I should have zagged. Like I shouldn't have ski cut a, a persistent weak layer. That's, that's the wrong tool to mitigate that problem, right? I, you know, I, I lost my plan. Like I, I, I didn't recognize my competency and I overstepped my competency. So there was all these bad decisions I made, but they were actually less important to this fact that I was like, yeah, it's, it's, it's a numbers game. And, and if we play in this world long enough, we're going to make bad decisions. And so how do you, well, there's two things that came out of it. The first was like, I want to know the numbers. And so that's what actually my master's was, was figuring out how many, uh, how much, what the exposure is, how many ski start zones the ski guys choose to ski on an average day. And the, um, the number is 20. We, we ski, that's a ski guide, heli skiing. You, you, the average is you drop into 20 pieces of terrain that could trigger an avalanche. So that's 20 times you're making a decision that could have a pretty consequential outcome in that domain. And so even if you're batting, like if you're, if you're making decisions right 99% of the time over a hundred day season, you know, that's, that's like, 2000 decisions you've got to make right you're not going to make them all right and so for me the real big takeaway was that's you know you got to layer your mitigation so why not push into the mature timber to regroup you know why not space your group out when you're heli skiing why 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 feel the pressure to keep the program moving and, and have people stacked on top of each other and skiing you know pretty close together so playing with spacing is just like it just gave me a framework to every any time i felt an operational pressure to like take a shortcut it was like oh yeah take a shortcut but just remember you're like it's not that you're not going to make these bad decisions you are going to make bad decisions and you're gonna make lots of them but hopefully if without taking shortcuts you're going to get away with most of them too you're going to be able to have a layered approach to your, your your risk mitigation where you can you know it doesn't trigger or it triggers but it runs a different direction or it grabs your group but you only had one person on the slope and so having that yeah having it was actually it was really, uh, I treated it as a blessing to get, to get that smackdown so early in my career. Cause I think it, I think it made me a, a better guide. Right. And, and early on, I got this really good feedback from the mountains, like literally day three, um, that yeah, has really informed, like has informed the last, well, now it's yeah, 15 years of my life. So it kept me al alive through it because there've definitely been other close calls, but, uh, I was able to have a mindset where I was positioning myself best to account for those close calls. Providing yourself a margin. Always providing margins. Yeah. Yeah. And it's easy to say, like I said, I'll say it again. It's easy to say always provide a margin, but until you're, you're conscious of the fact 
that you, it's not if you make a bad decision, it's that you are making probably multiple bad decisions multiple times through the day, right? Um, you know, I wasn't an A student. Like, I, I wasn't getting 90s. I, I know I know my track record. So, uh, yeah, I, 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 I account, like, in my, in my risk calculus, I'm accounting for multiple bad decisions all the time and, and giving myself sufficient margins. Doesn't mean I don't get rad. I like to, I like to, I like to ski. I like to ski, you know, in fun, aggressive terrain, but, but, uh, I, I definitely stack the odds in my favor and have a pretty cautious approach to stepping out into those bigger, bigger terrain features and bigger, more consequential terrain for sure. Hi, Rick. That was a great reflection on that experience. I, I, I really appreciate you breaking down the numbers and, and it brings it all back to your math degree. So, uh, that, that's really cool to hear, you know, like how many, how many decisions we're making in a day through start zones. Uh, yeah. And, and I think it's important to acknowledge, you know, the times that we don't get it right, but nothing bad happens, right? Like there, there is some luck involved in that, um, throughout a, a long career in the snow for sure. Yeah. I think most of our our negatives are false negatives, right? We, we mm-hmm. make a bad decision, but we don't get feedback. And that's that whole idea of the wicked learning environment. Yeah, no doubt. Well, thanks for sharing that. That was awesome. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah. That's definitely something that I think is a, a positive development in the conversation in the avalanche world is this idea of the, the wicked learning environment and non-event feedback. And uh, just because nothing happened doesn't mean that you made the right decision. And it's something that I think as professionals, we talk about a lot. Um, and I think for your sort of like, quote unquote, weekend warrior, that's sort of the biggest challenge when your, your mileage is not as high and your motivation is pretty high because you've been working for the weekend, um, tempering your expectations and going out with the mindset of instead of like, justifying why you're going to ski something like always looking for the reasons not to ski it. Yeah. I I think this is a whole other conversation, but, but, you know, I I think a lot of guides spend a lot of time skiing pretty mellow terrain until they have high confidence and then ramp up aggressively. And I think that is a, a, that's a challenging strategy to, to apply to the weekend warriors where your days are limited. You don't have the volume to like, you know, there, there is that pressure of like, I, I want to get some good skiing in because I've only got two days this week or three days this week. So, um, yeah, but I, I think, you know, you, the numbers are the same. Like you're, if you're, if you're skiing, who knows, who knows if they're the same, but the, you know, there are numbers where you are going to be making, you're making decisions every day, regardless of what you're doing and, and, and recognizing recognizing that there'll be mistakes made. But I think the other part of it is like the value of podcasts like this, where, where we get to, to share these stories on a larger forum. Right. And, and, uh, and yeah, take this, take this knowledge that's been hard work one over two decades of working the mountains and, and uh, acknowledge our mistakes and, and hopefully share the valuable takeaways. So yeah, I think you guys are doing really valuable work with, with the podcast. Thanks for that. Thank you. And thanks, Caleb, for starting it. Yeah, thanks for being part of it, you guys. It's a it's a community effort. So it's awesome to see so many more voices getting involved. It's where I want it to go. Well, it's awesome to see you getting recognized with your award at ISSW for uh, the work you're doing here. So I don't know if you've had a chance to mention that on the podcast yet, but uh, kudos. Right on. Thanks, Eric. Yeah, appreciate it. Right on. Well, Eric, I really thank you for joining us here on the podcast. You've been super generous with your time. Um, there's some really valuable insights in everything that you've shared with us today. So a lot to digest there. And um, thank you so much for your your time and participation. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for including me in this, you guys. And it's it's nice to kind of compare and contrast some things and learn across the border for sure. There's There's a lot there. And and I'm pretty sure we could spend numerous hours talking through much more of it. But uh, yeah, nice to meet you, Eric, and and hope to get the CAA more involved in the podcast here in the future. 
Awesome. Yeah, we'll take you up on any opportunity. Great. Well, thanks, boys. Have a great one. All right. Cheers. Talk to you later. Well, that was a great conversation with Eric Sharp and Caleb Merrill. Thank you guys for joining me, and thank you all for listening. I appreciate Eric's thoughtful debrief of his avalanche early on in his career. I'll be taking home his insights into making thousands of decisions a season and providing margins to allow for mistakes. I think we can all relate to this in our own time in the mountains. Thank you for listening and supporting the Avalanche Hour podcast. If you haven't had a chance to rate, review, and subscribe to the show, please do. It really helps us continue the conversation and grow the community. This podcast is all about sharing stories, knowledge, and news. So if you've got suggestions, questions, or ideas for future episodes, please contact us. You can do that on our website at theavalanchehour.com, where you can also find our past episodes. You can reach out at theavalanchehourpodcast at gmail.com. Find the podcast on Facebook and Instagram at The Avalanche Hour Podcast. If you've been enjoying the show, tell a friend. If you want to help support the podcast, there's a new donate button on theavalanchehour.com. Thank you to everyone who's supported the show so far. Our sweet logo was created by Mike T. Thanks, Mike. Head over to MikeT.com and check out some of Mike's work. That's M-I-K-E-T-E-A.com. Music for this episode was written and performed by my good buddy Gravy. Thanks, Gravy, for the tunes. You can hear more of Gravy's tunes at gravy.tunes on Instagram and find that album on Bandcamp. This episode is produced by Wes Gregg. Thanks, Wes. Until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, keep having fun out there. <laughs>